Good morning. Great to see all of you this morning and uh, to be back after being gone for a couple of weeks. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Romans chapter 1. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, those of you who are in here, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And uh, if, if not, uh, if you don't have a paper Bible, there should be an app on your phone where you can turn to it as well. Well, let's... Um, we're, we're, we're launching a brand new series. It's on the first four chapters of Romans. And uh, we're going to cover the whole book of Romans, but we're going to do it in three different series. And the first series is called The Gospel Journey Back to God. And we'll talk a lot about this gospel journey next week. This week, what we're going to do is we're really going to focus on being able to read the book of Romans with understanding. And so that's where our focus is going to be uh, today. And so we're going to pray, and then I want to tell you about a couple of things, and we'll jump into this sermon. So the prayer today, the prayer of illumination, is based on Romans chapter 12. So please, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your truth. Remind us that you have called us to be set apart for your glory and your purposes. Teach us to follow you faithfully. Lead us to walk in your will and in your ways. Transform us and use us for your kingdom and for your glory. Father, we bring before you uh, what our community and really our whole country is facing with the trial for the killing of George Floyd. We, we pray for the selection of jurors, for the judge, for everybody who's participating in this trial. We pray for the right outcome. We pray that whatever the outcome is, though, that you would protect uh, our country from violence and destruction. But Father, we also pray that this would be a moment, that we would use this as a moment for your church to show empathy and show love and unity through, through all of this. Father, also uh, pray for the virus, uh, for protection from the virus, for uh, the effectiveness of vaccines, protection for the vulnerable, uh, a return to normal as soon as possible. For those who need comfort in their loneliness. We thank you for students, uh, older students who are returning now to school or have returned. I pray, Father, that you would, that you would um, just help them in their connections and keep them safe as well. We thank you, Father, for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, with the trial of George Floyd, with the polarization that our country is experiencing, and even within churches, there's a lot of polarization um, over many of the things that have happened over the last year. Uh, I, the journeymen, our, our men's ministry on Saturday mornings, are working their way through a book, one chapter a week, a book called Compassion and Conviction. And I am kicking off, I, I was thinking of doing this independent of the journeymen uh, deciding to do this, so we were kind of thinking on parallel lines. Uh, but I am kicking off a Facebook group that will be a book club, a chapter-by-chapter -chapter book club on the book Compassion and Conviction, which is really about stewarding our influence uh, in this world, bringing the gospel to bear on our interactions with uh, our civic engagement in the public square, in our neighborhoods, and all places like that. So if you'd like to participate on that, just go to my website and you'll be able to uh, find out how to, how to join that Facebook group. All right. So let's hear the scripture read. Let's watch the video. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. 
the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, keep, keep your Bibles open because we will be returning to that passage as well as working through other passages in Romans today. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons we're going to be focusing on how to read Romans and really how to read letters in Scripture, and many of the principles that we're going to be talking about today also apply to reading of Scripture in general, is because a lot of people read the Bible, and they read it with very little understanding. And I think a few things happen when you open the book and you read it and you don't get anything out of it. One is that you start just depending on other people to explain it to you and to read it. And so you stop reading the Bible yourself and you might read a verse or two in a devotional or something like that, and kind of that'll be the extent of your Bible reading. For a lot of other people, it's just get, they give up. They just set the Bible aside. And, and, so, um, and, and then eventually kind of drift away in their personal relationship with Christ and with God because they're not having that two-way conversation with Him. But I think the Bible can be read with understanding because even though the Bible isn't easy to read, it can be understood. Um, can, oh, he's not there. Okay. Um, so take, for example, what the Apostle Peter says about Paul's letters. He says, our dear brother Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So even in Paul's day, this is Peter writing a letter to a church. He says, even, even he is saying Paul's letters, which they have read, uh, some of them, they're hard to understand. And then he says, With it, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, there's a few things I want you to notice, about four things that I want you to notice about what's being said here. And one is that Peter and Paul, we're going to see how Paul does this as well, both refer to Paul's letters or Paul's writings in Scripture as letters. And this is a really important point, uh, not to be taken for granted. Paul didn't write any books that we know of. Nothing has survived. He probably never speaks of writing any books. He wrote, he wrote no books. He writes letters. And the letters that he wrote were written to be read out loud, not necessarily to be read, you know, by every individual in the church. So he always had that in mind, that people would be hearing his letters being read out loud. No one had Bibles in their homes. The printing press had not been invented. If you were to read Scripture, it's because you would go to if you were Jewish, to the synagogue, eventually to maybe a home church, and there would maybe be some scrolls there, and you would memorize it, and that's how you would take in God's Word. You didn't have the opportunity to just, to just pick up a Bible and read it. It was too expensive. People could not afford to have. And the Bible would have been just the Old Testament. They wouldn't even have had the New Testament. When Paul is writing this, probably none of the Gospels have been written yet at this point. And so... Um, it, it, you've got Paul's letters, 
their letters, and they're to be read out loud. So this is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4. After this letter has been read to you, so he's writing Colossians, is written to the churches in Colossae, a city called Colossae. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the churches of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea, which is probably referring to one of his letters that went to Laodicea. Now, we don't have a letter to the Laodiceans in our Bible, uh, so it's either a letter that just didn't survive, or it's what he's talking about here is what we call Ephesians, which was a circular letter. It was intended to go to an entire region to be passed on from church to church. So that might be a reference to what we call Ephesians. In 1 Thessalonians, so a letter that Paul writes to a church that he founded in Thessalonica, he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter, again a letter, read to all the brothers and sisters. So these are letters, they're to be read out loud. They needed to be read as letters back then, they need to be read as letters now. They're not theological books, they're not topical Christian books, they're real letters communicating to real people in real circumstances. Second thing I want you to notice from that is that the Bible is written not to us, or, or is written for us, not to us. The Bible is written for us and not to us. So there's plenty of scripture that explains that the Bible is written for us. These texts that are written are meant to shape our faith, our understanding of life, but they're not written to us. They're written to other people. Every single document here was written to other people. And the reason I say that this is really important is because a lot of people oftentimes when reading the Bible, they'll say something like, well, what this means to me is... Now, uh, that might mean when someone says that, maybe you've said that, well, that what this means to me is what you're saying is the way that this applies to me. All right? And that's, that's good because we, it is written for us. So you're, you're saying what this means to me is... With a more correct way to say it, if you really want to communicate, what you, if that's what you're saying is, what this means for me is. But it's not written to me. So I can't say what this means to me like it was written to me. This is really important because if I can make the Bible say whatever I think it says rather than asking, what was the original author saying to the original group of people? It's only from that question that I can step back and then say, so what is in this for me? Bible is written for us, not to us. Very important to remember. Number three, even first century people found Paul's letters hard to understand. Um, why? Well, very simple reason. They only have half the conversation. When you're reading a letter and you only have half the conversation, you have to piece together what is going on here? What, what, are, what, what is he talking about? And not just that, the Apostle Paul writes very dense letters, especially Romans. It's dense with information. So it's, you're not going to get it the first time you hear it, the second or the third time. You have to really think about it. Um, number four, Peter assumes that while Paul's letters might be difficult to understand, they are understandable. That's implied when he says some people distort it. So you can't distort something if you can make it say whatever you want. You distort what its original meaning was. And that's what's happening. They're distorting it. Uh, its meaning is accessible. It's not like Paul was creating some kind of modern art 
uh, some kind of postmodern art that was intended to be looked at and interpreted by the person who sees it, and whatever interpretation they come up with is good. It's not that way. You wouldn't want your letters to be read that way. If you read a, wrote a book on a particular subject, you wouldn't want it to be read that way. Uh, so it's, it's, you have to ask, what did the author intend? The Bible isn't easy to read, but it's understandable, and the Bible is written for us, not to us. So today's sermon is about understanding how to read the Bible more narrowly, how to understand the book of Romans. This is, or the letter to the Romans. This is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul from the city of Corinth. We'll see why that's known. From the city of Corinth uh, to churches in Rome. Probably at this point, a few hundred people are Christians in Rome. You don't have denominations, you don't have anything, it's just a bunch of house churches and they're all connected with each other in one way or another. Just a few hundred people who are going to get this letter and it's going to be passed around and they're going to read it. They might make some copies of it, uh, almost certainly, well they did, they did make some copies of it and that's going to be uh, passed around. So when we're reading Romans and when we're asking the question, how can we understand this letter better? What we're really asking is, how can we understand the greatest letter of all time? Because this is arguably the greatest letter ever written. And you don't have to be a Christian to say that. I mean, from scholarly standpoint, compared to all the other letters in history, this letter has had more impact on history than any other letter. I mean, there might be some others that some people might put into that mix, but this is the greatest letter of all time. It's had historical and worldwide impact. Uh, I was going to review it for you, but it's one of the things that got put on the cutting room floor. But let me just say this. Uh, it was in reading Romans that Luther began to understand that the righteousness of God is something that is given to us, not by us earning it, but by faith. And we'll get into that later. This book sparked the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation changed all of Western history, all of Western history, still having impact today in ways that most people can't even, the most secular person is still impacted by the Protestant Reformation. That's why it's said to be the most influential letter of all time. So let's look at how to read the greatest letter of all time. Number one, read it slowly, carefully, reflectively, and repeatedly. So this is challenging for most people today. Maybe in most days. Maybe more so today. Uh, because most of us don't read dense material like Romans. For fun. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like once you graduate, you kind of set aside uh, philosophy and those kind of things. This is a philosophical work, okay? It's a theological work, but it is a philosophy in theological terms. It is a philosophy of looking at things. And so we're used to reading maybe short articles, even long articles are hard for most people to read. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to read the beginning a little bit at the end and wait for somebody to tell me what the summary was from someone else. We're, reading, we're used to reading short, 
blog posts, you know, that kind of, not short blog posts, but short social media posts, those kinds of things. If we read a full-length book, it's usually a novel that entertains us. Uh, you know, it's that kind of a thing. Rarely a careful, sustained, philosophical, theological argument. Rarely do we take that in in our lives. But Romans is, by any historical and literary standard, an ancient, literary, and even philosophical masterpiece. All the books of the Bible are inspired, every single one of them. But not all the books of the Bible are literary masterpieces. Scholars agree Romans is a literary masterpiece. This is what um, N.T. Wright says, who is one of the greatest uh, biblical scholars of today, especially of the New Testament. It should be listened to. Talk about Romans. It should be listened to in a way one might listen to a symphony. Not simply for the next big tune, but for the larger whole to which all the tunes contribute. The flow of thought in this letter is not a matter of moving from one topic to another. It is, to say it again, a sustained and integrated argument in which Paul comes back again and again to similar topics, but each time in a different key or with a different orchestration. Like the whole book of Romans is contained in the first 17 verses because it's like a symphony where you get this main, I don't know if it's called an overture or whatever, but you get this main piece and then it's going to work its way back in at various points in the symphony and everything else is playing off of that and then it comes back again. And so next week, I'm, I've got a really big challenge to, to try to focus and encapsulate those first 17 verses uh, in a way that, that, makes, that makes sense because it is so dense. So this idea of reading it slowly is one that's really, really important of, of reading Scripture carefully and just how important it is. Uh, I want to show you a video from the Bible Project that will help you understand that. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like The Hunger Games or The Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time, or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are intentional. 
intentional? Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether it makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay. Meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself and then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jewish writing style, it must create unique types of narrative and poetry and discourse. Yes, and we'll explore all of those literary styles starting next with biblical narrative. This is uh, one of the reasons why we want everyone to take the Story of God course that we have, um, is because it introduces you to reading the Bible in this, in this sort of way and understanding that it is part of a, every passage you read is part of this larger story. All right, so number two, read it as a letter. If you're going to understand the greatest letter of all time, you need to read it as a letter, a, written, a letter written for us, but not to us. And it's not just any letter, it's an ancient letter, which makes it a little bit more challenging. Peter's congregation found it difficult, right, to understand Paul's letters. Even though they share the language, they share the culture, um, they share the same historical circumstances as Paul. Imagine how much harder it is for us who are living in a completely different world than what Paul was living in. So what does it mean to read it as a letter? Well, since when you're reading a letter, you don't have the whole picture, you have to try to piece together as much of the picture as you can. It'll help you understand the letter. And it's not just, and, and that's actually not that hard to do. But fortunately, you're not stuck having to figure that out for yourself. You, you can read through the book of Romans with that in mind, and you can piece together the situation pretty well on your own. But you have the help of, like in the video, you have the help of your friends. You have the help of actually Christian history and scholars and all kinds of people who have spent a lot of time uh, looking at this. Um, so let's try 
together right now to piece together a little bit of this picture. So back to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Uh, Verse 1 through verse 7 is called a prescript. We don't have prescripts in our letters today, but it's part of the template that people used in that time. It's the way letters were written at that time. And so it always begins with who the writer is and then who the recipients are. It's the longest prescript, though, of any ancient letter ever written. There's no letter that has survived that historians look at that has a prescript as long as this one. And we're going to look at the middle part next week. But I just want you to get the two key parts, which are Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. The writer is the apostle Paul. Who is he writing to? To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. All right, so it's written, it's written for us, not to us. It's written to the holy people, the people who belong to God in Rome. Um, all right, so next, look at verse 10. In my prayers at all times, it's finishing a sentence, but then he says this, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. He sent them a letter saying, I'm hoping to come to you. All right, and he's going to return to this subject uh, later. In fact, I want you to turn to that right now. Turn to chapter 15 of Romans. So in chapter 15 of Romans, we're going to look at verse 20. He says this. So beginning actually in chapter 15, verse 14, the Apostle Paul has finished like the body of the letter, and now he's dealing with business, all right, Um, and specific words to people there. And uh, But then in verse 20, listen to what he says. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. He understood his calling as being one of being a missionary. He was the greatest missionary of all time. And he wanted to go places where, kind of like Star Trek, where no one had gone before. <laughs> all right, that's, 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 his, that's his mission. That's what he's trying to do. All right, pick up in verse uh, 20. Uh, no, verse 23. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. Like, what? Well, the only thing we can understand from looking at Paul's ministry in the book of Acts and and just other things that he says, what he means is his approach, which is to go to major cities and major regions, he's reached all the major cities in all the major regions. And if not him himself, he'll plant a church that then he gives them a missionary mandate, which came from Jesus, and they go and they start spreading throughout that region. So he's looking at the region that he's in of the Roman Empire, and he says, I'm done here. You know, I, I, I can go in various kinds of directions, and I've chosen my direction. So he says, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, verse 24, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. It's on his way to Spain. That's where he wants to go. Now, I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. So he's hoping that Rome is going to be like a base for a future mission. And just knowing from Paul's ministry, you know, two things that he's talking about here. He's looking for, or three things. He's looking for when he's in Rome, 
and getting himself ready to go to that next step to go to Spain, he's looking for a place to stay. So he's laying the groundwork for that. Probably not a problem. They've heard of him. And, um, and uh, although there may be some questions about his theology, and that's part of the reason he writes all the stuff in between. So uh, he wants to have a place to stay. Uh, he wants to get financial support for the next leg. Now, Paul was pretty much self-supported. He worked with leather goods. He, was, like, he traveled from place to place, set up shop, would rent some space, and that's how he worked. Uh, most of his vocational type ministry, if you want to call it vocational ministry, was done in the evenings, but you can imagine during the day he was having lots of conversations with all kinds of people. And so the Apostle Paul here is probably wanting some financial support for his mission, but he also is probably looking for partners in mission. Paul never goes anywhere by himself. He always has people with him. You read the book of Acts, he always has a group of people that are with him. And so, uh, beginning of verse 25, or let me go back to verse 24. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me, there you go, on my journey there, on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem. So he, you're going to see this in a moment, but he's in Corinth, and he's working his way. Rome, Corinth, Jerusalem. I'm going to turn it around here. Rome, Corinth, Jerusalem, all right? So he's on his way down to Jerusalem. He's going away from Rome. They are, uh, okay, so he's um, for, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. And so what he's doing is he's taking an offering and he's collecting money as he goes along these various cities to take it to uh, the Jews who are believers in Christ and to be a blessing to them. Verse 28, so after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. It didn't quite work out that way. He's arrested in Jerusalem. Prophets had told him he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem, but he went anyways. And he spends years in prison uh, and gets moved around. Eventually makes it to Rome as a prisoner. Okay, so that's kind of the rest of the story. Verse 29. I know that when I... Uh, well, no, we'll stop right there. So he's on his way to Spain. Look at verse, chapter 16, verse 1. We're trying to figure out what's the picture, what's the fuller picture. We've only got one side of the conversation, so what's going on here? Excuse me. Uh, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sensria. Okay, so Sensria is about eight miles from Corinth, where he is right now. And... Uh, Phoebe, who is a follower of Christ and a deacon in her church, is, um, is going to be tasked, actually, with taking this letter. It, all scholars are agreed. That's why she's being introduced here. She's the one that actually brought the letter. That's why he says, welcome her. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. It means give her housing, give her food give her uh, some support so that she can make it back, not necessarily to put it on her own dime, although she may not need their money. But it goes on, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. The term benefactor there almost certainly means patron. Patrons were well-known in the Greco-Roman world of that time. They were the people that paid the bills. They were people of wealth that were in the church. 
because the church would be made of slaves, day workers, and there wasn't a middle class per se. There was a middle class. It was a small, educated middle class. It was highly educated and didn't get paid very much, but did jobs uh, that mostly used creativity in their brains. They ran things, some of the things like that. But most people were either like day workers or very rich, the 1%. I, I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's, it's less than 5% of the people in that world. She's one of that 1% or 5%. She's a benefactor. Greet Priscilla, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. We meet them in Acts. Some years earlier, Paul meets them, and they are, uh, they've been kicked out of Rome. So what has happened historically is the Jews have been kicked out by an emperor out of Rome. They got blamed for something. And so they say, all the Jews, out of Rome. That would mean include Jews who are now followers of Jesus. The church is left in Rome as only Gentiles, non-Jews. A few years later, a new emperor, Nero, comes in, and he says the Jews can come back. Now these Christian Jews, these Jews who are followers of Jesus, come back into the church. And you can imagine the tensions that that would create, because we're talking about two very different cultures coming together. And Paul's going to deal with that from basically from chapters 9 all the way through 14. He's going to be dealing with that tension that's been um, created there in that church. Really interesting, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the female. She's always mentioned first, uh, which means she was probably the leader within that family. Almost all scholars agree with that as well. All right, so verse 5. Read also the church that meets at their house, so they are among the wealthy. You can't have a church meeting in your house if you're a day worker. You just, you just wouldn't have room for it. You have to be a wealthy patron to be able to have a church meet in your house. We're not talking a lot of large church. We're talking 12, 15 people, maybe something like that, 20 people. Um, but you would have to have a, a space, probably a courtyard, something like that, that, that is part of, your, part of your property. Greet my dear friend, Epinetus, uh, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. So they met in Asia. So we think of that time, you know, they didn't have the transportation abilities that we have, but they had incredible transportation abilities. And the Apostle Paul worked in the transportation business to some degree. And so uh, he worked aside next to other people who also worked in the transportation business because that's how cities were formed. Here would be the area where the leather workers and the people who fix your wheels and, you know, all that sort of thing. These would be where they would all be. They would all be renting spaces, and that's where Paul would be living, upstairs, working the daytime down here, going upstairs to sleep at night. That's it. He wouldn't have a room. Uh, you'd be sharing a space with other people. That's what his life looks like. And he tells us in other letters what his life looks like because he didn't like to receive money from people. He preferred to work and raise his own money. Corinthians get very angry at him for that. They're like, why don't you take any money from us? He says, because I want to do it free of charge. And, uh, and there's a lot implied when he says that. Look at verse 21. Now he's starting to talk about where he's at and the people that are there. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason's, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. All right, the Apostle Paul never traveled alone. These are some of the people that are his, 
the people that travel with him. Some of these names we know from the book of Acts. They're talked about in the book of Acts. And so this is his like close-in team. This is like for Jesus, Peter, uh, James, and John. These are his closest associates. And we have letters that Paul has written to Timothy as a young pastor. Um, I, really interesting verse, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who wrote this letter? Tertius did. It's Paul's letter, but Tertius is actually the one who has written it. He is the scribe. And from what's known, and there's lots that's known about letter writing in that time, very expensive to write a letter on parchment. That's why most letters are short. This is the longest letter, surviving letter, of all letters. And so you have to write really small and legibly so people can understand you. And so Tertius is the one who does that. Happens to be now, if you went out and hired somebody, in today's dollars, estimated around two, $3,000 to hire somebody to do this. So you've got to be really, really careful. <laughs> and you've got to be efficient in doing this. And so scholars like N.T. Wright says, you can guarantee everything that's written in the book of Romans, Paul has taught and discussed that while he's on the road, when he's in an evening having some time with his friends mentioned right here, he's talking about the concepts that he's going to communicate. Well before he writes this letter, as soon as he gets the idea of writing the letter, he's starting to think, how am I going to compose this? What, what am I going to talk about first? Where am I going? He's going to be testing material with the people he's talking to. They're going to be making suggestions that are going to work their way into the letter. There are going to be times when they're going to go, I don't understand that. Can you explain that a little further? All of that is happening. There would be drafts that would be done on wax just like very carefully done. This is why it can be a theological masterpiece. Not all of his letters were that way. Some have the, the distinct um, sense that this was written rather quickly because of a situation that's happening there. Not Romans. Romans is very, very carefully thought out. Verse 23, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. That's, that's the biggest clue that he's in, in Corinth because Gaius is from Corinth. And he's mentioned in this way in Corinth as well. He has a home big enough that all the house churches can gather together for special occasions. He's a very rich man. And then it says, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus send you their greetings. So one of the interesting features of 1 Corinthians, uh, you might remember, is how the Apostle Paul says, um, how he says, uh, not many of you, they're kind of braggadocious. They think that they have like attained some kind of high spiritual, um, higher than Paul, spiritual insight. And so he says to them, you know, not many of you are rich. <laughs> not many of you are influential. But some are. He doesn't say that, but that's the implication. And you find out by the time you get later in the letter and by the time you know what, how, how they would have gathered in those days, by the time you read things like this, you understand there were some people of some means in that church and even of public influence. There's a director of public works uh, who works for the city of Corinth. He's the, he's the director of it. So um, that's a little bit of looking at this, understanding that it's a letter, and understanding kind of the dynamics that are all going on in that church so that when we come to some places in the book of Romans, we're going to go, oh yeah, that makes sense why he's building the case this way. People think that Romans is just this theological letter where Paul is just sitting and going, I'm going to write a, a, a theology 
of the cross and of atonement and of justification. It is that. It really is. But it's written for a church that is in tension between Jewish believers in Christ and Gentiles believers in Christ. And it's shaping exactly how he is putting together his theology, how he is stating his theology. It doesn't change his theology, but how he's going to state his theology. Okay, whenever you read a letter, there are four contexts that you have to look at. You have to look at the literary context. So any word I read, I need to look and say, what came before it that adds, adds to the meaning of that word? What does it mean in that sentence? What does it mean in that paragraph? What does it mean in the whole? That's how reading works. That's how you read an article. That's how you read anything. So you have to look at the literary context. Part of the literary context is understanding this is a letter. And there are going to be times where he's going to break into hymns. Okay? And that's a different kind of writing. All right? He is going to just kind of take a hymn that was used by Christians in that day, and he is going to, going to use it in his writing. And so, but the main Main type of writing is a letter. If you remember the video, this is prose discourse, all right? Cultural. Um, you have to think of the cultural context, including language. Language is a cultural artifact. Our language is embedded. We took a little test in our staff meeting this week, and you answer 20 questions, and it'll tell you what part of the country you're from. And it's accurate. Nobody said, oh, this got it wrong. It's accurate, because language is a cultural artifact. Um, historical, you have to look at the historical. What's happening in the Roman world? What's happening everywhere you know, in, that, in that city? What's, what's going on at that time? And then the occasion and purpose. Why is this written? And it's not just letters that have an occasion and purpose. Nobody writes anything without having an occasion or purpose. Even the Gospels were written not to, well, somebody's got to write it, so I'm going to write No. They were written to real communities who needed to hear about Jesus, and it shapes the way that they write their particular gospel. John is the one of the four gospels that is clearest about this. He says, I wrote for this reason. And so it, it feels very different from the other gospels. All right, so those are the, the contexts. Um, next, uh, number three, read it within the context of the story of God. I think that video captured that really well. Uh, there's a big story. They, they just did the genealogy thing, pointing to Jesus. Everything in that story, Genesis 1 and 2, is, it's like the whole Bible in two chapters. And then, actually, you've got to have Genesis 3, the fall. Um, and you have the whole Bible in three chapters, and everything else goes from that. And there are, are these threads that run through the whole story. As far as understanding Paul and his time, you need to understand that he is writing in the time that we, the theologians call the already, not yet. And in our Story of God course, we go into quite a bit of detail about this. This is extremely important. The old age is passing away with the first coming of Christ. Christ brings the new age, the kingdom of God, breaks in on earth. But it doesn't come in fullness until his second return. And so a lot of questions that people have as to, you know, why does God heal sometimes and other times does he heal? Why do we suffer so much? It's because we're living in the already, not yet. It's still broken. Things are still broken, and, but the kingdom of God is broken through. And we're to be purveyors of that kingdom, sharing that kingdom and doing kingdom work in our world. All right, so that's number three. And number four, read it with the church. Read it with God's people. 
there is a sense in which literally you cannot read the Bible on your own. I can't go into detail on this, but literally you can't read it on your own. I just kind of scratch the surface in what I say here next. It's the church, which is God's people, that preserved the Bible and passed it on to you. That just that alone, you would not have the Bible. It translated, and every if you speak more than one language, you know that every translation is an interpretation. If you don't speak two languages, can't help you. But if you speak two languages, you know that you cannot just take a word and word and word and word. Interpretation has to happen. That has been done for you in every interpretation of Scripture. Um, the church has provided guardrails for you. A lot of people want to ignore the guardrails. They want to be innovative. They want to come up with their own ideas and stuff like that. And it's like, there's, it's like every heresy that anybody comes up with right now is like has been discussed for hundreds of years. But people ignore that, and they ignore the guardrails, and so much more. You cannot read the Bible on your own. Read it not only understanding that so many people have gone before you, but also read it with a global perspective. And read it with an openness to, her, to learning from people who read it from a different social, economic, or ethnic background. Um, this is not a white man's book. This is not a Western book. It comes from the Middle East. It's a different world than ours. And a lot of things we miss because we are very American. <laughs> and again, if you don't leave this country and talk to other people who look at you and go, oh, you're so American. You don't even, it's, it's the air that you breathe, so you don't even know how American you are. And so we, we can't read this just as American. I'm not saying anything wrong with reading as American. Everybody reads it from their perspective. But when people look at it from other perspectives, it helps you understand it better. Fellow believers from different backgrounds can help you in this. One, um, one book that just come out recently, and it, won bit, uh, it got book of the year in Christianity Today is a book by Esau McCulley. Yesterday's Pioneer Press has a David Brooks interview with Esau McCulley. Highly recommend if you got the paper yesterday, get it out of the trash, go read that, art, that article. But it's called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And he, he brings how the... How, how the African-American experience of reading the Bible and following it in times of just horrible tribulation can teach the rest of the church around the world. And uh, we're going to especially bring it in on Romans 13. He's got a whole chapter on Romans 13. It also helps us overcome the problem when we read this way of seeing only the things that support our point of view, which is a problem all human beings have. Uh, and missing the things that don't support our own point of view. So uh, a great example of this, I've talked about this in a recent, not in a recent, a couple of years ago, a sermon. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, considered the greatest theologian America has ever produced before America was born. And so Jonathan Edwards, 1700s, um, just revered in so many different ways, a, a depth of thought that, that, that maybe hasn't been matched since his day in the 1700s. And yet Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. Jonathan Edwards was able to spend a lot of time writing books because his slaves, at a very cheap price for a pastor, uh, took care of a lot of the tasks that he wouldn't have to take care of. And it gave him time to study and to read and to, and to write books. 
he, was, um, he never wrote on slavery. Never comes up in any of his volumes, you know, like this. Never comes up, except the notes of a sermon that he gave at a church that was trying to kick out its pastor because he owned slaves. So he's in New England. There's a pastor who owns slaves. The church goes, you can't own slaves. That's not consistent with Scripture. And Jonathan Edwards goes and preaches in that church to defend that pastor. And the notes have survived. Jonathan Edwards would have done well. Even Jonathan Edwards would have done well to listen to the perspectives of others in his day. You say he's a product of his day. No. There were all kinds of Christians in his day who were saying, this is not consistent with Scripture. The Quakers had it down. But he would look at the Quakers and say, their, their theology isn't very good. So probably thought, I don't really need to listen to them. That whole congregation is trying to kick out its pastor. They saw this more clearly than Jonathan Edwards with all of his great mind and thinking. Uh, so we need each other. When we listen to people, especially people who are poor and marginalized, they're going to see things that we're just not going to see because this is a book filled with poor and marginalized people. Um, and so we can understand it better. So we kick off next week with the first 17 verses. Uh, there's some homework assignments on the sermon application guide. I commend that to you. Uh, some more videos to watch. Uh, and uh, then we'll, um, we'll work our way over the next few weeks to the first four chapters of Romans. Uh, let's transition now into our time of, of, of response because we don't just hear the word. Hopefully we begin to respond to the word. And I hope one of the responses for you as you leave here will be that you'll read the Bible more and with greater understanding, and that you'll grow to love the Bible. You will mutter the words of the Bible over and over again as you grow older and older, all right? And we do that remembering at all times that the center, center of the gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to be reading about that. But in the cross, Jesus gives his body. And he took the bread on the night of the Last Supper, and he took the bread, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took the cup of Passover that he was celebrating and he said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. We do this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you, you have revealed yourself in your word, that you have given us a way of looking at the world. You've corrected us, you've taught us. You've given us vision. You've given us what we need to lead the kinds of lives that more reflect your image and your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.